the book of Ephesians, then we'll head into the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, So if you want to just kind of prepare yourself for where we're going to be, Ephesians chapter 2, and then on into the book of Acts and other places as well. Uh, We've been in the midst of our fall summer uh, sermon series on the spiritual disciplines, uh, learning to exercise or train ourselves in the art and discipline of godliness. And uh, we have been exploring the spiritual disciplines that are communal, that are corporate, that we need to do together. And this morning we come to two related spiritual disciplines, which we will call the ordinances. The ordinances. Well, I trust that you're close to Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bible. Let's pray and we'll dive right in. So if you would pray with me, church. Father, we pray your blessings upon your word that is taught, your word that is heard, and then your word that is lived out. Father, you have given us much in the Christian life, many avenues of sanctification, many pathways uh, for us to become more like your son Jesus. Many of them we practice individually, and yet so many of them we must participate and practice together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And these that we come to this morning, the discipline of baptism and communion, Lord, are uh, certainly not the least of these. Father, your very son has given the church these two ordinances that we would remember what he has done for us and in us. So be well pleased, Jesus, by what we speak today and what we hear and how we live. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and together all God's people said, amen. So last week I began by sharing a story from my own church experience growing up. And uh, I shared briefly that uh, after, uh, after com- uh, during a time where there would be potlucks in our, in our church, that uh, the kids would sprint from the fellowship hall, I mean from the church into the fellowship hall because we couldn't wait to be first in line. Um, but what I didn't share is that that actually wasn't the only time that the kids in the church, including myself growing up, would do that. Because we would not only do that on potluck days, but we would actually basically do the, do the very same thing on communion days. Now, here's why. Um, the pastor's wife that I had growing up, uh, she, for some reason, thought that it would be good for us not to take little uh, crackers or wafers. No, she wouldn't settle for that. So what she would do uh, is early in the morning, she'd get up on those Sunday mornings when we would share communion, and she would bake freshly baked bread. And you could walk into church and smell the aroma of this fresh bread and know that it was communion day. And for those of us who love bread, including myself, uh, even as a youngster, we were excited all the way through, right? We could, we could anticipate that. So we would share communion together. And then what our pastor's wife would do is uh, pretty much immediately following the service, she would take all of the communion elements, including any leftover bread, into the fellowship hall. So what do you think us rascal kids did? Once church was out, we hit the door and boom, we were running to the fellowship hall because whoever was at the bread first got the largest handful, right? And we would raid the kitchen for the leftover communion bread and we would take it by the handful and gobble it down. And when we were done, we wouldn't stop there because the leftover communion cups were there. And so we raided the fridge and we got these little communion cups and we would just down them as fast as we possibly could. We loved communion days honestly, for all the wrong reasons, right? But as a kid, we loved communion days. So friends, let me just ask you this question. Is communion just about taming our grumbling tummies with a light appetizer in church? Is that all communion is about? 
Similarly, is baptism merely about getting your head sprinkled or your body dunked in water? Or is there more? Well, today we are going to continue this conversation on the corporate spiritual disciplines, looking at two of them commonly called ordinances in Protestant circles, that of baptism and, of course, communion. So let's begin this morning with a brief clarification of the nature of these two practices, the nature of the ordinances. And then we'll dive into discovering how these two ordinances can convey sanctifying grace. And I say that specifically, life-changing, sanctifying grace to those who are already born-again Christians. So let's first look at the nature of the ordinances, and then we'll look at the number of the ordinances, namely two, baptism and communion. So let's begin by exploring briefly the nature of these two practices that we call ordinances. Now, as opposed to the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, which typically call these sacraments, and they do so because they believe them to be rites which convey to the participant saving grace. And I emphasize that. Saving grace to the one who participates in it. Protestants, on the other hand, generally call them ordinances. Now, we believe them to be symbolic. We believe them to be symbolic reenactments of the gospel message, right? That Jesus lived and that he died and that he was buried and that he rose again. And we believe that these convey sanctifying grace to those who participate in it by faith. So in other words, in other words, while some view both baptism and the Lord's Supper as necessary for and a means of eternal salvation, the Bible clearly teaches us that eternal salvation is by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Again, Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, amongst many other places, confirm this. Paul tells us this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So then, how shall we see communion and baptism? We should see baptism and communion as visual aids, if you will. Visual aids to help us better both understand and appreciate what Jesus has done for us, right? And we receive them as means not for us to get into heaven in the afterlife, but to help us make us holy in this life. Means of sanctifying grace. I really like what Mathis in his book, Habits of Grace, says to help us understand the nature of these two ordinances. If you'll read along with me, he says this. He calls these two practices visible words. I love that picture. These are visible words. He says, in complement to the spoken words of the gospel preaching, these twin rhythms of the gathered church are dramatizations of the gospel, excuse me, of the grace of God. These visible words rehearse for us the center of our faith through the God-given images and actions of washing, eating, and drinking. He says they engage not only our ears, but all five senses, sound, sight, touch, smell, and taste. Alongside preaching, they reveal to us again and again the heart of the gospel we profess and aim to echo in our lives. And he continues by saying, in this way, baptism and the Lord's Supper are a part of what it means for the new covenant 
to be a covenant with acts of both initiation and ongoing fellowship, both inauguration and renewal. The two ordinances are means of God's grace. Christ instituted channels of God's power delivered by the God's Spirit, dependent on Christian faith and the participants, given for the corporate context of the gathered church. So these ordinances then are God's communal spiritual disciplines. In short, baptism and communion can be seen as as signs, right? Baptism and communions are signs. That is, they point us to the gospel of Christ. They are seals. They affirm for those of us who participate in it that we have been born again, that we believe that gospel. And they are sanctifying streets, if you will, of ongoing grace to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. So, we've briefly then touched on the nature of these ordinances. Let's then talk about the number of them and explore the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of communion. So here's a question for us. Why do we say that there are two of them? Why do we say that there are two ordinances in contrast to to many non-Protestants who believe that there are up to as many as seven? Why, Why just two? Well, the short answer is simply this. We believe that there are only two Because these are the only two, in my estimation, that the Lord himself has instituted for his church. It was taught by the apostles that followed him and then practiced by the early church. So, two ordinances. Let's begin with number one. The ordinance of baptism. The ordinance of baptism. While I would love to and someday will give an entire sermon on baptism, I want to be a little bit more brief than that. But here's what we're going to do. As we look at baptism, I want us to first look at baptism through the lens of the individual, the individual Christian. And then I want us to look at baptism through the lens of the corporate experience, right? That of, uh, of me and you as we view a person being baptized, right? So how is baptism for the person who participates in it, who is born again, a, an avenue of transforming grace? And then how is it a means of corporate grace for those of us who watch it? and participate, so to speak, in that baptism. So, let's begin with the individual. The individual getting baptized. And I want to frame this little section by asking and answering about about five questions, right? Five simple questions, five pretty simple answers. Let's begin with question number one. Simply put, what is baptism? Right? It's important that we define our terms here. What do we mean when we talk about baptism? Well, baptism, simply put, is an outward symbol of an internal reality. It is an outward sign, if you will, an outward symbol of something that has happened in the spiritual life of the person being baptized. Baptism is a way for a person to demonstrate publicly. It's a corporate discipline in a sense. It's it's a way for a person to, to publicly demonstrate that they have believed in Jesus Christ. They've trusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And they have then been born again and they want to follow him as their Lord. So that is what baptism is. Let's move to the second question. And it's a little bit more um, complicated than that. Who gets baptized? Who is to get baptized, right? Well, I think we see this pattern. If you read through the New Testament, and in particular, if you focus in on the book of Acts, we see repeatedly, repeatedly, that baptism is for those 
who give a believable profession of faith in Jesus as their Savior. So let me repeat that. Baptism is for those who profess a believable profession of faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is, they make a profession of faith that they've been born again, and then baptism follows that. And the order is absolutely critical, right? So let's just look at a couple examples. There really are are many that we could look at. If you have your Bibles open, uh, let's turn to the book of Acts, right? So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in your New Testament, and then you get the book of Acts. We see the record of how the early church lived and, and lived out the gospel and brought the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we see a pattern, I believe, emerging in the book of Acts. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and specifically, we will look at verse 41. Acts chapter 2, specifically looking at verse 41, but let's set the context here. In Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost occurs, right? The disciples are gathered, the promised Holy Spirit comes upon them uh, like, like tongues of fire, and they speak different languages, and they attract all sorts of attention from, uh, from their fellow Jews there in Jerusalem, right? Uh, Pentecost occurs, and Peter, by the power of the Spirit, opens his mouth. And what does he do there in Acts chapter 2? For the the bulk of Acts chapter 2 is a sermon. And Peter expounds on the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he's the Savior, that he died for their sins, and that they need to repent and place their faith in him. He preaches the gospel. There's this invitation offered, so to speak. And uh, do you remember how many people got saved that day? 3,000, right? 3,000 people became Christians that day. What a crusade it was. So 3,000 people trust in Jesus as their Savior. And then what happened? Then they get baptized. Take a look at verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added, added to their number that day. So we see this pattern beginning to emerge in the book of Acts. The gospel is preached People repent of trusting in sin and self, and they trust in Jesus Christ. They're born again. And then they follow Jesus in baptism. They are publicly baptized. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 8. We move from Acts chapter 2 forward a little bit to Acts chapter 8. We see there in Acts chapter 8, again, to set the context, in Acts chapter 8, we see that persecution begins to come upon the early church. And the early church is scattered out of Jerusalem. And they go into all sorts of different places. And Philip, the apostle Philip, goes to the region of Samaria. And he goes throughout the cities of Samaria. He begins to proclaim, according to verse 5, he proclaimed the Messiah there. So he's going and he's preaching the gospel, right? And lo and behold, all sorts of people come to place their faith in Jesus. And verse 12 of chapter 8 sums it up well. Notice what verse 12 says. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, what happened? What happened after they believed in Jesus, right? They were baptized, both men and women. So friends, here's the point that I want to impress upon us. What we see emerging in the book of Acts is there is a pattern. And it's God's pattern for baptism. A person uh, professes faith in Jesus Christ, and then they get baptized, right? They hear the gospel. They understand the, the gospel. They, they comprehend it. They, they receive it in their hearts. They're born again. And then, as a response to that, in obedience to Jesus' command, which we'll see shortly, 
they publicly get baptized to identify with Jesus. So friends, this is why, in in part, I believe in what is called believer's baptism, as opposed to what is commonly known as infant baptism. I think you probably all know the distinction. In infant baptism, uh, an infant gets uh, baptized. In believer's baptism, someone who is old enough to understand the gospel, to receive the gospel truth, then to profess that, then in response to that, gets baptized. And, and, and not to go overly into, into that point, but, but here's something that I want to challenge you with. What do you believe about baptism? What do you believe about who is to get baptized? And a more important question comes, why do you believe what you believe about baptism? Because, friends, we have to allow the scriptures to influence what we believe about baptism. Now, to be sure, there is some uh, biblical wiggle room. In fact, uh, I believe it's five times in the book of Acts we see a person coming to faith. And that person comes to faith. They make a profession of faith in Jesus. That person, man or woman, then gets baptized. And we get the language of, uh, of a household then being baptized, right? It's a language of uh, so-and-so came to believe, and then they and their whole household was baptized. So we have to give a little bit of wiggle room here. We have to ask, does that allow for the possibility that in that household, even an infant, even a young child, an infant, unable to understand or articulate the gospel, is it possible that that infant was baptized? I would say sure, it's possible. But what I would also say is this, is what is the reoccurring pattern that we see in Scripture? That a person who is baptized has to be old enough to understand the gospel truth. Because baptism is a response to a profession of faith in Jesus. And as far as I'm concerned, a one-year-old or a six-month-old can't comprehend the gospel and profess faith in the gospel. And it seems very reasonable to me to take these household baptisms that we see in the New Testament as basically the New Testament writer saying, so-and-so placed their faith in Jesus and was baptized, and anybody else in their household who also was old enough to believe in Jesus and profess Jesus, they too were also baptized. So friends, what do you believe about baptism? And more importantly, why do you believe it? Number number three. Number three. How should we get baptized? Now this question relates to the means or the mode of baptism. So let me go once again to the Bible. What do we see happening when we see baptisms occurring in the New Testament? Well, Quite honestly, what we see every single time is that when a person is baptized, they're baptized by what I would call immersion, which simply means they're put under the water, right? They're dunked into the water. In fact, the Greek word, which, uh, which translated in, in English, baptize, literally means to plunge or to dip or to immerse. So in the New Testament, when this, this word baptism or baptize is used, it literally means to go under the water. And lo and behold, that's what we see happening in the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple really quick examples. Number one, in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 10, we see that Jesus himself was baptized. It's a whole other question for a whole other day. We can talk about it after the sermon. But Jesus himself was baptized. And so the question becomes, how was he baptized? Well, Mark chapter uh, 1, verse 10 tells us that Jesus, quote, came up out of the water. 
So what we see is that Jesus himself was immersed. We see in John chapter 3 that as John the Baptist was baptizing, he was, quote, baptizing at Anion near Salem. Now why? Why was he baptizing in this particular region? Well, John tells us. He says because there was much water there. Now what does that imply? It implies that he needed a lot of water to be able to baptize people, right? To be able to get them underneath the water. I heard a, a pastor tell a, a story of his four-year-old daughter. And I guess as pastor's kids uh, are sometimes prone to do, they were playing with their, their friends in the backyard and they were playing church, right? And uh, so the four-year-old daughter was uh, taking the, the, the position of her daddy and it, it just happened to be a baptismal service. So they were playing church and uh, it was a baptismal service and lo and behold, uh, they found uh, her cat to be the uh, recipient of baptism. I guess she thought that'd be fun. And so the four-year-old daughter is holding the, the cat over a barrel of water. And I'm sure the cat's not responding particularly well. And, uh, and, and so trying to be as solemn as she can, kind of repeating what she has seen her, her daddy do, she said to the cat, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and in the hole you go and dunks the cat right into the water. You can, you can imagine how well that went. So she got some, some of the elements of Christian baptism correct, right? Now certainly not all of it, but she got the immersion part correct, right? So how do we get baptized? I think the evidence is overwhelming in the New Testament that we are baptized by immersion. Number five, why does an individual get baptized? Why get baptized? Well, the primary reason for a follower of Jesus to get baptized is simply to obey Jesus' command. When we place our faith in Jesus as Savior, we take him as our Lord, right? He saves us from our sins, and we begin to follow him in obedience to him. And the first thing that a a follower, a disciple of, of Christ should do is obey what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. Jesus taught this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, number one. Number two, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, I want to be clear here. While baptism is not necessary for salvation, it is an act of obedience that springs from salvation, right? And it is a wonderful means of grace and assurance to that born-again person as they follow their Lord's command to get baptized in His name and in the name of the Father and in the name of the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, let me challenge you and ask you as pastorally and as kindly as I can, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you profess to have faith in him, to have been born again, but you have not been publicly baptized, identifying with him as your Savior and Lord, then friends, would you consider that act of faith? Would you consider following Jesus in baptism, making public that you are his follower as an act of obedience to him? So that's what it means for the individual. For the individual to get baptized is a tremendous means of grace. Because for a born-again believer, they are literally maybe taking the first initial step of obedience to Jesus. Hopefully, in what will be a lifetime of following Jesus in obedience. So it's a tremendous means of grace for the person being baptized. But, But here's what I want us to consider. Baptism is not only a means of grace to the person who is being baptized, but friends, if you've ever witnessed a baptism, 
then I, I hope you know what I'm about to say is true. Because being baptized is a means of grace. But for those of us who are born again and we witness a person being baptized, what a great means of grace that is as well. In fact, the, the Westminster Confession, a great Presbyterian doctrine, points at this. And in fact, very interestingly enough, the Westminster Confession calls uh, when a Christian observes the baptism of another Christian, the Westminster Confession calls it improving our baptism. Isn't that interesting? That when we as a believer watch another Christian being baptized, that in a sense we have the opportunity to improve our own baptism? What, what does that mean? How does that work? Simply put, like in communion, we, when we watch a believer being baptized, we are reminded visibly of our own salvation and baptism experience. We are reminded of our own commitment to that Jesus, right, who died and was buried and rose again to new life. That same Christ that that person is professing faith in, we have that commitment to Jesus as well. We are reminded that our own sins have been washed away by his blood as pictured very vividly in the act of baptism, right? We are reminded of our own conversion, that we too, like that person being baptized, that we too as a Christian, our old self is dead and our new person has been uh, united and raised with Christ in new life, right? And so when we witness the baptism of another believer, friends, don't just twiddle your thumbs. Don't just take notes, right? Pay attention. See your story in their story, right? Watch with eyes of faith the gospel on display in those waters, See his sacrifice for you again. Hear the music of your own burial and your own new life in Jesus Christ. And in that way, we too can improve our baptism even when we're the ones watching it. So, ordinance number one is baptism. Ordinance number two. As with baptism, communion, the second ordinance, was also instituted by Jesus himself as he shared the Passover meal with his disciples on the night of his betrayal. We see it recorded in three places, in Matthew, in the Gospels, that is, in in Matthew 26, in Mark chapter 14, and then in Luke chapter 22. But we also get a a fourth recording of this incident, and it's in 1 Corinthians. So if you want to turn there to our final passage, 1 Corinthians, just turn to your right in your New Testament, um, and you will hit it shortly. You get Romans, and then you get 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus gives a, a, a divine vision to Paul of that very night. We see that recorded in chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. And then Paul gives instruction to the local church in verses 27 through 34. And as we look at this passage, specifically in verses 23 through 26, I see four aspects excuse me, three, three aspects of communion here that I think serve as a means of God's transforming, sanctifying grace for the born-again Christian who participates in communion, as we will, in just a few minutes. The first avenue relates to the past. The first avenue relates to the past as we rehearse the gospel, as we rehearse the gospel. Notice, starting in verse 23, Paul said, For I received... From the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
in the, in, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this, is, this cup is, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the first aspect of communion, which I think God uses to, to sanctify us as born-again believers, is we once again rehearse the gospel in our minds. We remember afresh and anew what Jesus has done for us. I ran across a story of a, of a, of a man, and he was working in his backyard. And uh, as neighbors often do, his neighbor uh, came across and uh, was talking to the man. And he said, hey, what's going on, Fred? And Fred said, oh, not much. And the man said, what'd you do yesterday, Fred? And the man said, well, me and my wife went to one of those seminars. You know, one of those seminars that you're supposed to be able to improve your memory. And uh, the man was interested, and the neighbor said, oh, well, that sounds pretty interesting. Um, what was the name of the speaker? <laughs> and the man said, um, well, um, you know the name, of, the name of that flower. It smells so good, and it has, it has thorns. To which the neighbor responded, oh, oh, you mean a rose, a rose. And the man said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. And then over his shoulder, he called to his wife, hey, Rose, hey, Rose. What was the name of that speaker we heard yesterday? You get it? Because he forgot the name of his wife. So, listen. We, God knows that we're forgetful people. We need to be reminded again and again of that which is most fundamentally important and true. And that's why we have communion, right? No less than two times in these verses, Jesus t- tells us that we, when we do it, we do it in what? In remembrance, right? We do it in remembrance of him. So the first way communion is an avenue of grace is that it allows us to remember and to receive what Jesus did for us in this divinely ordained dramatization of the very gospel. And as such, it allows us to renew ourselves afresh, right? To renew ourselves afresh to this new covenant which we entered into through faith in Jesus Christ, the new covenant maker. Mathis says it so well. He says the table is an act of new covenant renewal, a repeated rite of continuing fellowship and ongoing perseverance in our embrace of the gospel. So it gives us grace because we remember and rehearse the gospel, but there's a a second element or aspect, and it relates to the present. Because in communion, we not only rehearse the gospel, but we proclaim Jesus' death afresh. Notice verse 26. Paul says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, what? You proclaim the Lord's death. So friends, not only does communion point us towards the past event of Jesus' death for our sins, but it is a powerful proclamation in the present that the forgiveness and the salvation made available through that death is still being offered. Right? It's still being offered today. So in effect, when believers in a local church like ours take communion, it is a visible sermon to those sitting in the pews who have not yet trusted in Jesus as their Savior. It is a gospel message. It is a gospel proclamation to them that they too can have their sins forgiven if they simply trust in Jesus alone. And there's a third aspect, and it relates to the future. It relates to the future. Because in communion, not only do we rehearse the the gospel, the past, what Jesus did for us, not only do we proclaim that death as salvific for us in the present, but we await a coming feast in the future. 
it points us towards the future. Notice the, the tail end of verse 26. I'll read it again. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes, right? Until he comes again. So at the table, we are not only to remember Jesus' death in the past and proclaim it afresh in the present, but we remember and anticipate the prospect of the future return of Jesus to the earth as we picture it in a, a, a heavenly banquet, right? Notice the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 19. If you want to flip there, you may. It's easy to find. It's the very last book in your Bible. So turn to the end, chapter 19. There in chapter 19, we see this wonderful proclamation, this picture of a future heavenly feast, a communion feast, if you will. And there in verse 7, there is a multitude of voices from heaven, and they proclaim this, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready friends it's a picture of a of a future feast to come which communion points us to right it helps us anticipate that this communion that we take it won't be the last one that there will be a day in heaven or on earth we don't know when where this is exactly going to be but it doesn't matter there will be a day when we sit at the table with jesus himself and what a glorious day it will be. I ran across this great little story, and we'll end with it, of a small country church, much like ours, up in Wisconsin. And they had a very unusual tradition uh, to close out their communion services. As the story goes, they adapted it from how uh, the Jews would end their Passover meal. So since the hope of every devout Jew was to celebrate at some point the Passover in David's city, which of course is Jerusalem, what the Jews then would uh, often do is they would end this, this, this meal with a toast. And the Passover participants would raise the cup and they would say, next year in Jerusalem, right? We anticipate someday we'll, we'll share this together in Jerusalem. And this little church kind of adapted this, right? They they, 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 they thought to themselves, communion is like that. It looks backwards to Jesus' death on the cross, and it looks forward to his second coming. And so this little church, to end their communion, would raise their cups, and they would say, next time with Christ. Next time with Christ. Because they anticipated that one day they would share communion together with Jesus himself. And so, friends, when we come to the table, as we're about to do, It is a great means of God's grace to those of you who are born again. We rehearse this gospel that saved us. We proclaim to all and any who are here who are unsaved, they are not Christians. We proclaim that gospel to them. And we anticipate the day when we share the meal with Jesus himself. So friends, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray and the music will start. And I will invite any and all who have place their faith in Jesus Christ. They profess to know Jesus through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. You know you're saved. Then please come to the table after a time of prayer, after a time of personal reflection and examination of our own heart, as Paul teaches us a little bit later in 1 Corinthians, right? Uh, So pray, examine your heart. Uh, Thank the Lord for what this means for those of us who are saved. Remember what Jesus has done. Keep in mind that you're proclaiming the very gospel to those who are yet saved. And we await the future, the day when we share it with Christ anew in his kingdom. So if you would pray with me, church, 
and we'll open communion together. Father, we're very grateful that your word has much to say on all sorts of disciplines, both private and public, that are great means that you have given us streams of sanctifying power that if we simply avail ourselves to them and jump in the current, so to speak, that you can change us to become more like your son. Father, they are private and they're public like these, the discipline of baptism and of communion. And now we come to the table in which we anticipate sharing together this bread that has been torn into pieces as the body of your son was torn into pieces. And we anticipate sharing in this this juice and remember that the very blood of your son was spilt for us on our account for our sins. So, Father, as we come, may we rehearse this gospel again and again. And may we proclaim it to all who are here. And I pray, Father, if there's a man or a woman, a boy or girl, and they are not sure that they will be in heaven with you, they are not sure that they have personally come to this cross and bowed the knee to Jesus, because there's no way that they can be good enough for heaven and for you. There's no way that any of us can be. May they receive Jesus' perfect life lived in their place. May they receive his substitutionary death, died for them, bearing their sins and the Father's wrath in their place and his powerful resurrection to forgive their sins and to give them both new life now and eternal life forever. Lord, may this day be the day that they would come to the table with the assurance of their salvation, knowing that they have trusted in Christ and in Christ alone. And may we come knowing, Father, that we share these elements We proclaim Jesus' death until the day that he comes back. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly, we pray in Jesus' name.